Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. What follows is the third of four speakers who appeared at the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium at the Chamberlain Hotel in London on Saturday, December 5th, 2015. This event was organized by Frog Moody and Time Zone Publishing's Casebook Classic Crime in conjunction with the Whitechapel Society. All four talks will be presented in their entirety and uncut, and the accompanying slide presentations will be made available for download on the individual presentations podcast page at casebook.org. Get ready for speaker number three, Neil Bell, Blue Bottles and Tex, Life as a Policeman in H Division. Previous employment with the 88th Foot, as you can see, 
and at the time of application, he was actually working for the Great Northern Railway Company. Now, there's various criteria that you have to meet to drive both the city and the net. This is actually for the city. Um, you must not be under 21 or over 32 years of age. You must not be less than 5 feet 9 inches without shoes. You must not carry on any trade, nor the wife be permitted to keep a shop. This was just in case the business failed, as it would open up the uh, constable to potential corruption. Um, must be able to read and write legibly. Must produce satisfactory testimonials. Must be certified physically fit by the divisional surgeon. And the long-winded one at the bottom is actually basically stating that you must abide by the rules and regulations of the police acts of parliament. The Met had a similar criteria. I won't go through those essentially I've already read them. Um, there was actually a limitation on the number of children an applicant had or could have when they joined. This because should a constable die on duty, the force are actually liable to provide for the widow and children. And therefore to cut costs, they limited the number of children joining policemen could have. Application forms were kept for a couple of months after which they were, the unsuccessful applicants will be discarded and applications destroyed. Should you actually be successful in passing uh, the, the application stage, you get invited to what's called Candidates Day. Um, basically, um, they would be invited to HQ. Sorry, I'm actually going ahead. Are you touching that time now? You're messing around with my slides. <laughs> Hold on, apologies for this. Candidates today, we've done that, haven't we? Yeah. There we go, right. We'll start again. If the applicant was successful at that stage, you'll then be issued with a letter inviting them to attend HQ. Kate, hey, what's going on? There's something typing on it. Do you reckon? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll endure. So I've not set it up like that. Okay, okay, apologies for that. Right, um, attend HQ to have physical and mental tests. This was commonly known as Candidates Day. The candidates will be weighed and measured. They will also be tested on their arithmetic, um, reading and writing skills. Um, the candidates will then be stripped and a full medical undertaken. Um, they have tests on their eyes, their joints, their heart the feet, they'll be looking for any deformities, basically anything that will be stopping the uh, constable from, from doing their job or the candidate from becoming the constable, I should say. Um, this is actually a photo of Dr. Frederick Gordon-Brown conducting a medical on a City of London candidate. Um, as you're probably aware, Gordon-Brown was the guy that uh, attended the um, Martyr Square murder scene. And whilst we're talking about divisional surgeons, As well as looking at the health of candidates, divisional surgeons have the responsibility for the health of all policemen within the force, as well as prisoners. They also attended scenes of suspicious and unnatural deaths, which is why these surgeons appear predominantly in the story of Jack the Ripper. Here we have Dr. Alexander McKellar, Chief Surgeon for the Metropolitan Police on the left, and the City of London counterpart, again, Dr. Frederick Gordon-Brown on the right. Uh, due to his size, the Met also appointed divisional surgeons for each separate division. In the case of Page Division, this was Dr. George Baxter Phillips. If a division was large or heavily populated, 
Doctors were appointed as supportive divisional surgeons. Back to the candidates. Should they pass the physical and the mental examinations, they'd be invited to attend preparatory school. And now it's not going full time, you're messing around with it. Successful candidates move on preparatory training for which the MEC took around about three weeks to complete and was spread over three locations. One Kensington Lane Police Station Section House, where the candidates ate, slept, read up on role of constable, and partook in telegraph communication trainings and socialised. They were allowed home on Sundays and permitted to go to the pub on occasion with a strip provider that back at Kensington Lane by 10.30. The pub's on the left there, can the other location was um, Wellington Barracks. Here the candidates undertook their physical training, chiefly in drill, which was done daily for many, many hours. They also did self-defence training here as well. And the final location is Scotland Yard itself, where candidates attended lectures on common law, such as rules and regulations, safety, as well as basic first aid training. And again, we see Dr McCabe on the extreme right, delivering a first aid lecture. Once the candidates had completed their training and were deemed suitable, they'd undertake the oath. Which basically goes, I swear that I will run and truly, to the best of my knowledge and ability, act as constable for the Metropolitan Police District and within the royal palaces of our Queen, uh, Majesty Queen Victoria and ten miles thereof, for preserving the peace and preventing robberies and other felonies and apprehending offenders against the peace. He goes on. And with that, I will well and truly execute the office of constable and all powers and duties which I may be authorised or required to execute by virtue of an act of parliament. It still goes on. Passed in the 10th year of the reign of His Majesty King George VII for improving the police in and near the metropolis, or by virtue of an act of parliament passed in the third year of the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria for further improving police in and near the metropolis. So help me God. And all that's left to do was to register the new constables in the division. And here we have the H division registered showing Miser at the top, right at the top with his column number, H number 55. As well as at the bottom we've got um, CRDs thick and white. It shows personal details such as place of birth, previous occupation and so on. Publications. A constable will utilise two main publications throughout his police career. The instruction book on the left, sorry, the instruction book on the left and on the right in red, the police code. The instruction book was for internal use and provided guidance on rules and regulations within the force, as well as specific matters such as discipline. The code was written by former head of CRD Sir Charles Edward Howard Vincent and was for internal and public use alike. House in every police station presented to every constable already available in most bookshops. It provided guidance to constables and explanations to the public and was used extensively from 1881 to 1930s. Again, it covers a lot of things as you can see. Um, children's offences, dead bodies, which is obviously out with the general murders. Sit down, Steve. Habitual criminals, handcuffs. It's handcuffs, for <laughs> Misconduct of police. <laughs> this is murder again, very active in the Whitechapel murders. 
The final picture on page 122 of the code is interesting, especially in relation to the Gorsuch Street Graffito. This is an entry for obscene publications and reads, hopefully it's still obscene words and figures painted, written in chalk, on walls, doors, pavements, and so forth, should be defaced by the police, and the offenders charged if possible. Threatening words or figures should also be quietly erased. So it would seem the H division were bound by protocol to erase the famous graffiti after all. Right, I apologise for the next bit. Apparently it's in my contract. I have to do this. <laughs> That's the end of my contractual duties today, Mr. Publisher. Right, page division rank structure. Police were separated into two functioning parts. Uniform, which concentrated on uh, policing the public, abolishing laws, and so on, and CRD, which concentrated on investigating crimes and protection work. Both of these sides operated a rank structure of equal parts. Constable, the lowest level that you came in at, everybody started off as a constable in the police and worked your way through the ranks. Section Sergeant, second class, in charge of the big constables. Station Sergeant, first class, in charge of all constables at the station, and second overall in command of the police station. And finally, the inspector with regards to the station gives in full command of the police station. We also had uh, the superintendent, who was head of the whole division. I saw the Met superintendent in 1878, Arnold to the back row on the right there. Now, with regards to CRD, exactly the same rank structure. So we have Constable, here we have Tom Sadler's arrest of DC Gill. Sergeant Second Class, we have the S. Corntor, who will be in charge of the Detective Constables. Sergeant First Class, this is a notorious DS Fit, who supported the head of local CRD, known, better known as a local inspector, Edmund Reed, who incidentally passed away on this day in 1917, which is an interesting fact. Here in terms of the investigation only, CRD branches away from local level and moves into support from the higher CRD grants based at Scotland Yard. Such as, does anybody know who this is? <laughs> Inspector Avalanche. <laughs> 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 right, uh, let's take you around Commercial Street Station just to give you an idea of what exactly was contained in the standard police station of this period. Firstly, the exterior, designed to look imposing and official, officials, uh, sorry, com commercial street consisted of a ground level where um, the majority of operational rooms, cells, reserve room, etc. existed. It also had two residential levels, known as the station house, where men would reside on the first and second floors, as well as the basement level. We'll start off with the lobby. The first thing that will hit you as you walk into commercial street station will be the smell chiefly of carbolic. The station will be washed down with the stuff on a daily basis. Walls will be tired for cleanliness or whitewash monthly. If they buy by the laws, the lobby is probably the only location inside the police station the general public would see. Here crimes are reported. Witnesses were also interviewed here, however police orders stated that witnesses 
for future cases of judicial aesthetic witnesses should be interviewed in an office, which will most commonly be the inspector's office versus the office on the extreme right. Just beyond the lobby, you will notice a drawing room. It's just on the extreme left at the top. Um, now, by 1888, this has actually been converted into a telegraph room. So it's where they get all the telegram communications, and more of those later. The reserve room, the big room in the middle, was where the support staff would um, reside. More, again, I'll go into the reserves uh, a bit later on. The inspector's office, or estate's office, Obviously this is where the inspector is located, but also doubled up as an interview room, a charge room, as well as a medical room. And opposite there you'll see the inspector's store, the triangular room. And here, major weaponry such as rifles, pistols and cutlasses will be secured and destroyed. The cell block. Come on again, Tommy. Keep pressing the button, man. Uh, the cell block here prisoners will help pending charging, releasing, or transfer to court. This is all that remains of uh, Commercial Street cell block, just the one wall. Commercial Street had in 1888 10 cells due to renovations in 1886. <coughs> Six cells on the uh, bottom level, three cells along with an association cell on the upper level. One cell was a drunk cell where the floor was slightly sloped and removable. Here drunks will be placed on the floor rather than a bench. This so if they vomit, the vomit will drain down the slate and the prisoner will choke. The floor will be removed every morning and disinfected in the yard. Commercial Street had heated cells. The designers of the fluids actually went through the walls. However, Lima Street in 88 had the old stove style, um, old stoves in the corridor, which meant the cell nearest the stove got extremely hot whereas the furthest cell remained cold. Prisoners were provided with hot water to wash or dry clothes if required. They were also allowed hot coffee and food. However, the latter had to be paid for out of the prisoners' own money. Now you can see the two levels of cells at uh, Commercial Street. The yard. This would be where constables would conduct, conduct drill practice and also where they gain their practice self-defence. It's where the prisoner vans would arrive, ready to take charge prisoners to courts or to transfer to another station. Big triangle of yard area in the middle. Recreation room, library and clothing room. The recreation room is basically where the constables will be relaxed. They play cards, backgammon, billiards, do some exercises, weightlifting at the back, which have a game at the back as well. It also uh, undertakes some wrestling and boxing bouts as well. This is actually Bishopsgate Police Station. It's a two good English not to use. There's a wrestling bout going on in their recreation room there. Libraries will be subscribed and run by volunteers within the station. Books will be rotated amongst the divisional libraries. Periodical magazines and newspapers will also be kept there, along with instruction and guidance books. Basement level would hold the mess, canteen and washrooms. Messes were commonly found in the basement of most stations, however this was deemed unsanitary and eventually moved to ground level. Some stations actually had female housekeepers and cooks working in the kitchens. Men would also have their own individual food lockers within which they kept small food items such as bread, butter, fruit, etc. 
small stuff that they could snack on if they wanted to. However, it seems that most were used as storage for hair cream and pipe tobacco. The washroom had two baths and a row of wash bowls. Also, steaming hot foot baths were available for constables just off beat duty. They also had storage rooms and coal stores at this level. The first and second floors were residential dormitories for single constables, enabling around 50 men to rest during any one duty. Men's beds would be, have movable screens around them for privacy. The first floor uh, held, uh, also had private quarters for the inspectors, separate from the men. Uh, they would have two bedrooms, their own kitchen, sitting room, toilet and pantry. On the second floor was exactly the same layout, however this will have married sergeant's quarters instead of inspector's quarters. The benefit of ranking sure inspectors have fewer stairs to climb. I'm just going to briefly touch upon um, subdivisional roles, basically police station roles. Not all of them, just the ones that are kind of different from constable duties. The inspector Well, the inspector, he was head of the station, organising and instruction on both uniform and CRB. Um, we have the station sergeant. His, you can actually tell his rank by the four chevrons as opposed to three on his left arm there. He'd be in charge of the station when the inspector was off-site. We also had a special role called jailers. This is actually George Hawks, jailer at City of London's Bishopsgate Station, in charge of Catherine Eddowes. I didn't have a photo of him there, jailer. I'm afraid. Uh, Met jailers actually wore an armband stating jailer, so you could tell that they were actually a jailer. Well, okay. <laughs> Reserves. Reserves were experienced men. New recruits often understood beat work, with the seasoned guys the teenage all moving into a less physically demanding role. Um, due to their experience, reserves undertake a lot of paperwork in the station. Some stations have police clerks who solely date with paperwork, however, H Division did not in 1888. Reserves are also a jailers, mobilising monthly services, filling the big constables if they're taken out or were injured, and filling up other subdivisional stations or in any station across from there. Does anybody know who this is? No? This is actually PC Pennant. The photo we think is PC Pennant is not PC Pennant. It was actually marked incorrectly, I think in the 80s or 90s, on a photo that came back to the Metropolitan Police. Um, Research by Keith Skinner with the Aid of Paul Begging was true and showed that the guy on the left is actually Pennant. And he's actually, if you look at the, the photo of Pennant in the group photo of Page Division, it's about three along from on, on the right of the Pennant that we think is Pennant. He's not Pennant, of course that's Pennant. <laughs> Just wanted to briefly mention the operational role women undertook in police stations. The men did not have female constables until 1919. Though there were some female constables during the First World War, they did not have the powers of arrest. Some stations in the Victorian era had housekeepers and cooks, however a fair few of these stations had female jailers to look after women and child prisoners. These were termed police matrons. Formidable. A questionnaire was sent to all divisions in the 1890s asking for what reason the police matrons were used in their stations. 
Around regional, we'll have a few examples. The individual replied, insensibility, hysteria, fits, attempted suicide, murder, manslaughter, concealment of birth, rape, indecent assault, and some illness. J Division's response was attempted suicide, advanced pregnancy, sensibility, and strangely when French work. I think that is to age female prisoners in changing the work clothes. H Division's reply was simply when, necess when necessity arises. This is actually a list of uh, distances police matrons live from the stations, and if we come a bit closer, at Lehman Street, we can see the. Come back, come back. Back Sorry about this. At Lean Street, the uh, matron lived 440 yards away. Commercial Street, 500 yards, rather square, 150 yards, and shadow of 300 yards. Gives you the, uh, an idea of how close the matrons live to the actual station. And they're on call 24 7. Police orders. Senior ranks of Scotland Yard transferred information throughout their divisions via information sheets known as police orders. There were varying types such as general information, pawnbrokers and so on and contained a wealth of information relevant to many varying policing matters. And then we can actually see right at the top the announcement of Robert Anderson's Assistant Commissioner in September 1888. They were dispatched early in the morning, ready to be available at all stations around 9am, just in time for morning report. They were updated throughout the day, with urgent updates that were being received by the telegraph system. An example of information issued by the orders can be the strength, an update of how many officers are in the force at that precise date, across all operational ranks and divisions. Recommendations and rewards, if you know the rewards given to H Divisions, Alistair and J Divisions and rights in the top three or four. I think I can't really see that in the office. Um, they both have on the record case. Retardations, which is essentially moved down the rank. Suspensions and removals, and again we see the graffiti discover PC long being moved down the rank and suspended for what seems to be the final time due to being absent for three hours and then found drunk and supposed to be on duty. And also transfers. At the top we've got Constable Walter Stride, written victim Liz Stride's brother-in-law, who later identified the body of the wall, um, being transferred from B to T division. And at the bottom we've got Crippen's captor, Walter Duke, and his transfer as Constable from Hemsworth division, just weeks after Mary Kelly's murder, the third crime at the bottom there. Here's an interesting order from the 28th of January 1888, which you can't see because it's too long, but we'll give it away, which states that superintendents must source reliable photographers to take photographs of dead bodies and that they shall supply 24 images of the said body, which makes you wonder how, just how many more images of ripping victims are out there. Discipline. I reckon this is going to work because it's on time, so hang on. Um, there's various misconducts that the constable could be disciplined for, and to say them all, you need to find that book, capturing each other, and take it back out in January. <laughs> right. Hopefully, this will work. If not, I'm afraid we're going to have to abandon it. Going to, we're going to do a quiz now. Um, I'm going to read out some discipline reports. You're going to, have to tell me who you think you are, both city and their policemen. Okay? Absent from beat. <sighs> okay, I'm just going to go through it. All right, now. 
<coughs> Absolute from bed for 55 minutes, in the water closet for 45 minutes, passing water in bed, in sunny bed and bedding, drunk on duty, drunk inside a drop whilst drinking lemonade on duty, loitering <laughs> on his bed for the purpose of obtaining drink, and found inside a urinal for the purpose of drinking, drinking what? God knows. <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> it's actually PC Richard Pierce who's wondering about the Martin Square magazine. He says, not knowing if it's clicked or not. There we go. Richard Pierce. Well, the next one, not reporting information he had received, absent from beat and telling a falsehood. Absent from beat and telling a falsehood, drunk while on duty, drunk off duty in plain clothes, and assaulting a prisoner whilst in the dock. Many guesses. <laughs> no, kill breaks. Yes, that's it. It is PC to us, but you've got your book, John. No, no. No, it's good. It's great. Well, so on to the next one, alright? This is going swimmingly well. Well, the next one, having sexual intercourse with a woman whilst on his beat, in a public house whilst on duty, not discovering a key in the door whilst on his beat, in a public house again whilst on duty, drinking malt liquor whilst on duty. Yeah. And the last one is for Adam Wood. 20 minutes late for roll call and climbing over the railings of the yeah. station. It's a station house to avoid detection. Is that Adam? <laughs> yeah, you're like a cutting from your talk. We'll go through. It's actually Adam on again. No, it's awesome. <laughs> B-books. As mentioned, each division was in turn divided into subdivisions. And each subdivision was divided into sections which were patrolled by a team of constables around 10 to 12 in number, under the watchful gaze of a beat sergeant. Each constable was given his own smaller part of the section, and this was called the beat, and these were numbered. Each constable would patrol his beat for around about a month, before being moved on to another beat within his section. After roughly 10 to 12 months, the constable would return to his original beat. This kind of ensured familiarity whilst breaking up potential um, corruption. All beats were measured with a beat wheel. This to ensure they were roughly the same length. Beats were longer for day officers and shorter for night patrols. This meant two thirds of the beat constables were actually on duty during the night. Why? Well, it's obvious really. More crimes committed under the cover of darkness, therefore more constables were required on the streets at that time. Now this is actually H Division's beat book for the 1930s. While some of the streets have altered, others remain familiar to us. Um, when you actually look at them, I've got a few of these, uh, just note the complexity of the big reefs. You must bear in mind that the constables are expected to memorise these. The actual markings in red, the red lines is actually one route, this, that's one beat. That's actually Gorston Street beat there, if you actually look at it and break it down, it's covered in three parts. This was the beat by Gorston Street graffiti was found, PC Long's beat, essentially. It was also typed up as well, or written down. Again, bear in mind, the constables had to memorise this. It's just a list of streets, doesn't it? 
It also gives the relief, the early relief, the night relief, and the late relief, which is essentially the three duty periods. This one is Hammy Streets. This is could be potentially the one that PC Marsden um, undertook um, during the Polly Nichols murder. We spoke to Cross, not Reshman. Bethel Green Road, the north, most northern beat. Where it's white there, that's actually J Division's patch. And the height, that's the point. You would say that was the height, that brief glacier of the highest peaked in H um, Division, which was a London Street one. But anyway, I'll carry on. Is there. <laughs> right, equipment carried by constables during their beats are called appointments. These consist of a truncheon. Previous truncheons were elaborately decorated, however, by 1880 they were painted black with the monarch cipher on it, and also MP for uh, Metropolitan Police and CP for City Police. In the early days, constables used rattles to call assistance for emergencies. However, as the Industrial Revolution took a grip on society, the Siamese rattles made was lost in the hustle and bustle of Victorian London, so we replaced with saw. The Met Tenter, the Brassmonger, Jay Hudson Co., came up with a whistle, codenamed the MP1, better known as the Metropolitan. Trials were undertaken outside Scotland Yard, it was found that the whistle could be heard up to 900 yards further than the rattle. These were actually introduced in 1884 for the Met, but only on day patrol, oddly enough, not night patrol. That didn't come in until 1887. The city police were not issued with whistles until 1889, after the Ripper murders. However, once they received their new piece of kit, the city, in liaison with the Met, issued a new piece of um, instruction regarding the use of whistles. This was outlined in their orders, so I won't read the top of it, but I'll start at the bottom. The officer first arriving at the spot is to call assistance by blowing his whistle. On help arriving, to search the immediate neighbourhood, keeping a close observation on all persons who may be found within the vicinity, send at once for the station house and for the surgeon. When sufficient aid has arrived, the officer on duty will direct the constables from the adjoining beats to return at once to their beats and make careful search of all places likely to consider the miscreant. At the same time, to closely scrutinise all persons who may be seen about, instructing their comrades on adjacent beats to do likewise. There's another interesting add-on to this instruction, and that's at the bottom, it's regarding telegrams. Um, and it kind of explains how some big customers came aware that the ripple was about. Should the words Whitechapel again be wired from Scotland Yard, it is demonstrated that the murder had been committed, and the information is to be immediately given to the police on duty, so they, they may exercise the greatest possible vigilance. Finally, in relation to the use of whistles and Jack the Ripper, Here's a police instruction given both to the city and Met constables, dated the very day Francis Coles was found murdered, and seemingly written as a direct result of that. Okay, it reads, Information is for inspectors of divisions who murders. The officer making the discovery and requiring assistance will blow one prolonged blast on his whistle, followed by four short ones. The men in the immediate neighbourhood on hearing this will repeat the four short distinct blasts and hurry at once to the spot from whence the arm proceeds carefully scrutinising and stopping, if necessary, any person they may meet. 
Men hearing the full short blast will simply repeat that signal and at once keep a sharp lookout, but must not leave their ground. These three pieces of information gives a little insight on how the police were reacting to the awful crimes and gender murders. One, another piece of equipment is the pocketbook. Along with pencils, they were issued to all ranks and used to note down information of any significance. This is actually Donald Swanson's notebook, and there it goes. Bullseye <laughs> lamps, these were only issued to big constables on my Jupiter. They were hot, smelly, yet a god sending them to the kept the constable warm. Constantly on, they had a shutter which was kept closed so not to attract the attention of those up to no good, and were switched open when required. Finally, the warrant card, issued to all constables at the time of swarming. This gives a constable authority to act and was to be carried at all times, including when off duty. This is actually a one card for a special constable signed by uh, Commissioner Warren. Working the beat. The first full-time job any young constable is given is working the beat. The police code defines the beat as the portion of ground to be protected by the beat uh, by each constable, and adds the method of working the beat must be frequently changed, and the police be careful not to allow evil disposed persons to ascertain the system of working and the consequence hour of absence from any given spot. They beat constables must walk near the curbstone, not beat constables walk near the houses, this is so. They must not loiter or gossip, move smartly, not slouch or slumberly, answer all questions with civility and good temper, act quietly and discreetly, not interfering unnecessarily, but when need arises, show firmness and discretion. Must not leave their beats except in cases of fire or accident or other emergency, returning as soon as possible. To more places likely to be attempted by thieves, I'll talk more on that later. See the doors, windows, gratings, cellar flaps, fan lights, and places a thief might enter or obtain access are not left open. Beat constables will muster 15 minutes before they go out on patrol to be inspected. This is to see if all their appointments and that those who are working on for. And also to see that the constable is actually sober. So now, Steve. <laughs> they will also be furnished with relevant information, for example, to keep a lookout for a missing person or notorious villain, or pay particular attention to a specific building, vulnerable to burglary, journalists, for example. Constables will then be marched out of the station in single file by their section sergeant and taken to their beat starting points. Here they were peeled off and the constable finished beat duty before them would attach himself to the end. The, stage, the, the section sergeant sorry, would patrol around this section throughout the night. This to render assistance to the beat constable if required and also to ensure the constable was conducting his beat correctly. One thing I should mention is vaccination. Many beat constables, especially in Whitechapel, were exposed to illness. This was obviously due to the sanitary conditions of the area. Therefore, the Met actually vaccinated their men before they started. Marking. As mentioned earlier, this is a placement of small detection devices in gaps between doors and door frames, windows and window frames. Um, these devices were commonly pieces of thread or orange peel or fragments of whalebone. The items would be placed by the constable, and when he returned, he would inspect them. 
If they were not busy left them, would be removed, then it's reasonable to assume somebody had tried to, but been successful at in entering the premises. Bee constables will come across a number of various situations whilst conducting a bee, such as lost children. All stray dogs were taken to the village Shadwell station where they were given a bike to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> they were also fed and given water, pending any claim made upon them. And if no one did make a claim, they'd be handed over to Battersea Dogs Home. Fisticuffs. Most common assaults occurred through two months' drink. Constables could not make an arrest on assault unless they actually saw the offence occur. However, he could make an arrest if the injured party informed him of the incident and there was sufficient evidence. But most street rules were actually dealt with by separately separating the offenders and sending them on the way. Stop searches are power granted to constables under the Vacancy Act came in the form of Section 4, commonly known as SUS laws. This was, as the term suggested, aimed at those suspected of committing a crime and those who are about to, and most commonly affected reputed criminals and incorrigible rogues. Those known to the police as habitual offenders. The source law gave the constable power to stop search and, if needs be, detain any person who is in possession of property which the constable deems suspicious. Constables were also instructed to stop and make inquiries with people carrying suspect packages between sunset and sunrise. Now, I've given you just a minuscule example of the duties concerning beat work, there are thousands more. The work was physically and mentally demanding, which is why the youngest and newest members of the division were given this task. It was dangerous work too, especially in Whitechapel. However, if a young constable could survive this, he was set for a sound career, which could span 25 years, maybe more. And a little brief touch on detectives. All detectives are recruited to CRD from the uniform branch. Some uniform men were on plain clothes, usually for winter patrols when crime was a little higher, to assist the detectives. Here we have the police orders stating that Inspector Chandler, the first police representative at Andy Chapman's murder scene in Hamley Street, was to remain in plain clothes duty. This was to aid the investigation into a murder. Plain clothes work was kind of a stepping stone to CID for some uniform men as it gave him a chance to try out life as a detective. Now, as mentioned earlier, detective's work was split between Central Office Scotland Yard, where high-level crimes were investigated, and local divisions, where obviously local crime was pursued, and that's actually the case in CRD in 1989. The key to local detective work was local knowledge. However, as policing in London fell upon two forces, it was imperative that those forces, the Met and the City of London, as we see here, liaise constantly. This simply because the criminal fraternity did not recognise jurisdictional boundaries. In fact, most criminals use this to and fro as a tactic to avoid capture. However, as we can see from this note, the two forces liaised on a regular basis with regards to detective work. This note is actually from the Met's Convict Office, run by CID, offering to include any photos of wanted persons by the City Police in their daily informational circular, essentially a list of the most wanted. One essential tool used by detectives in Victoria and London was the Habitual Criminals Register. Held at the Convict Office in Scotland Yard, the register was a detailed record of offenders who, um, who had been convicted more than twice. Information such as date, place of birth, height, markings and tattoos and even eye colour was recorded. 
later the photographs were added. And here we have the registered photo of Richardson spent my glossary. These images will be circulated should any of these persons be required for questioning if they've been suspected of a crime. On occasion, detective work required the infiltration of criminal gangs or surveillance in the most dangerous of places. Detectives were regularly trained on self-defence and books were often published on the subject. The following images come from a book, Self-Defence, a chest upon the art of defence against attack, specially designed for the police instruction, rolls off the tongue. It's an instruction book on self-defence, and whilst it does have a partner-esque how to defend yourself against a man armed with a banana look to it, it does highlight some of the dangerous situation detectives, and all policemen for that matter, suddenly find themselves in. As we all know, this is the Cumberland outside stroke. A smart jerk would snap his arm. By pulling your wrist downwards and pushing his throat, his arm may be dislocated. <laughs> this one's for you, John. You are in a position to lay him on the ground face downwards. God knows why this is called what it is called, but this is apparently the flying man. <laughs> and finally, an effective guard against kicks. <laughs> as I stated at the beginning, I can only give you the briefest examples of life as a constable in 1888. I think many who studied Whitechapel murders failed to realise the reality of that life, in which other crimes still had to be investigated, on Whitechapel still had to be policed. Therefore, it was imperative the local community worked as one with the police to ensure security for all. Sir Robert Peel, when he created his new model police in 1829, pointed that fact out to all when he stated in his nine points that police, at all times, should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. It's important to remember that the police are the public and the public are the police. And finally, Tony. To end up, wake up. Sorry. Well, the mic closer to him. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.